0: Let's pray. Lord, this morning I sense the urgency of your gospel and your kingdom. Lord, it's a new teaching, but to many of us it's 2,000 years old. And I pray this morning that it would be renewed in our hearts, that we would receive what you have to say. And Lord, as the preacher, I ask ask that you would help me uh, to be useful to your people and be true to your word. So come, Holy Spirit, and help all of us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, last week and this week, we are looking at two successive paragraphs in Mark chapter 1, the beginning of Mark's gospel. And last week, the text, I think, generated for us the question, although it literally didn't say it, I think it was the big idea in the text what is the gospel? And we're in a sermon series on being partakers of the promise. So what is the promise? How do we take part in it? And last week, I brought out four words that Jesus used to answer what the gospel is. He talked about time, he talked about the kingdom, he talked about repenting, and then believing. And uh, this week, I think that the very next paragraph asks a different question. It asks the question, who is Jesus? It's a very good question to ask. In fact, it's one of the topics for Alpha. It's one of the week's subjects. Alpha is a bunch of questions. And the question, who is Jesus, is one of the videos. And what they do in that video is they go out onto the streets of either New York or London with a camera and they ask people on the sidewalk how they would answer that question. Who is Jesus? And as you might imagine, the uh, the answers vary widely. And it is helpful for us as we read through Mark's gospel to ask that question of ourselves. Who is Jesus for you? How would you answer, if you invited someone to Alpha and they said, why does Jesus matter so much to you? Who is he? Some guy from 2000 years ago, some religious leader. How would you answer the question? Who is Jesus and why does he matter so much to you? I think that's what this paragraph and much of Mark's gospel is actually doing for us. It is generating a question so that we will become partakers of his promises, so that we will actually answer it and live into it in faith. Now, I wanna point out that Mark is writing for our benefit. We're not eavesdropping on someone's journal. These were not private notes among the apostles in the early you know, couple years after Jesus' resurrection. Mark was crafting a telling of Jesus and his ministry for the generations to pass it on to people that weren't eyewitness accounts uh, eyewitness eyewitnesses he recognized that generations will come people are coming up that have not seen this they don't know someone that knew jesus and he was trying to pass something along it does not mean that it is fiction because it's highly sculpted it just means it's intentional to get you and i to come to faith in Christ. And so one of the things that I've told you before that Mark does is he shows confusion among groups. The disciples are confused about who Jesus is. The crowds are confused about who he is. Even the religious leaders, they're all confused. And the closest, the one who gets it closest in Mark's gospel is Peter. When he confesses directly, he's asked, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ. He gets that right, but then immediately, completely misunderstands the mission. And Jesus says, yes, that's right, and I'm going to die. And Jesus and Peter says, no, no, it never be so. And then he says, get behind me, Satan. You have the things of man in mind, not the things of God. So even though Peter got the identity right, he totally misunderstood the mission. Everybody's confused in Mark. And one of the things that Mark likes to do is he likes to put on the lips of the crowd questions that you and I should be asking. In our text today, Jesus comes into the synagogue and begins, begins to teach, and they are amazed, they marvel at his teaching because he has such authority. And they ask a question, what is this? A new teaching and with so much authority? That's so you and I will ask that question. Do I think that Jesus' teaching has authority? It's a new kind of teaching they had not seen before. Do, would you say that the teaching of Jesus is authoritative in your own life? Do you trust it? Do you build your life upon it? Mark is asking these questions by putting it in the mouths of the crowd and the disciples and the religious leaders. All these questions in his gospel are meant so that you and I will then seek an answer to them. It's interesting how he puts truth on the lips of the unlikely. In this text, a demon declares, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And nobody in there seems to acknowledge it at all. Like the, like, the people marvel that a demon submitted to him, but they didn't come back around and go, hey, that demon said you're the holy one of God. What does that mean, Jesus? You know? Or they ask questions like, who can command the winds and the waves? And they obey. But then it's just left hanging there as like an open-ended question. That's intentional, by the way. So you and I will ask similar questions. And it's it's climactic or anticlimactic that when Jesus dies, a Roman centurion says, surely this was the son of God. That's intentional by Mark. Now, what's cool about Mark's writing is you and I get to sit next to the narrator. We, it's like we have the secret information behind what's happening, and we go, ha, those foolish crowds, I know the answer. They don't get it, and, and that does help us, actually. That's, that's a literary device he has done to put us in the place of the narrator or next to the narrator so we can see from the very front. And he doesn't hold back. The very first verse, this is the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It tells us right away. This is good news, it's about Jesus, and then goes through all the confusion that people have, and he keeps hinting at stuff. So the question that, that is being asked of us sitting next to Mark, the narrator, is, will we be partakers of the promise? Who is Jesus? What will we do with that? Now, in this text, right away, there's a problem, and let me just, let me just address it the problem of demons. We, in our enlightened Western thinking, we say, oh, that's superstition, demons aren't real, and we dismiss it, and therefore we throw away a lot of the the Bible, actually. The New Testament is full of angels and demons all over the place. And if you were to cut out of your Bible all those references, there'd be a lot of holes in it. So what do we do with that? Are they real? The answer is yes, they absolutely are. Not just because the scriptures say they are, because they're seen all over the place. Talk to some people who are involved in prayer ministry, deliverance ministry, talk to global missionaries. Other countries don't have our our sense of scientific advancement and mature, mature thinking. They're way more open in other countries to spiritual realities, and so the demons don't even try to hide that fact. They go a different way, and they try to scare and intimidate. I can tell you personal stories of angels and demons that I've experienced, and frankly, a lot of you have as well. And it's not until somebody gets into a room where it's safe to admit that, you're not gonna be judged as some kind of spiritual fanatic, that the stories then start coming forward. Okay, but that, so right here, we've got, we've got this situation. And I wanna point out something that um, C.S. Lewis says in his introduction to Screwtape Letters, which is his book where he, he has a, uh, it's all fictional of a demon who's an uncle mentoring a nephew and how to be a, a, a worse demon, how to do more damage to people. And when C.S. Lewis was writing this, he pointed something out on the front end. He says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, the demons, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and they hail a materialist, or a magician with the same delight. So let's not do either. Let's not pretend there are no demons and let's not get obsessed with that right now. Let's just acknowledge they exist and they're not the center of the story. So what is the center of the story? Well, it's this, Jesus is the word that sets free. That's what this paragraph is teaching us. Jesus is the word. He is the word through whom all things were created. He is the incarnate word, and he is the teacher who's bringing the kingdom. He's explaining to us how the kingdom works, and he speaks in such a way that there's huge authority, and it sets people free. Mark, next week, although Curtis is going to take the epistle reading, next week will be the next paragraph, and we'll see Peter's mother-in-law get healed from a fever. Jesus' authority does this. It sets people free. His word liberates. Keep in mind when he went into Nazareth, one of his very first public teachings in his his hometown, he he got in the synagogue, he opened the scroll, and he went to Isaiah 61. And and he um, quoted that text as being fulfilled in himself. And he said, the spirit of God is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty for those that are in prison He wasn't talking about in jail. He wasn't talking about political or um, uh, moral prisoners who have been judged guilty. It was about spiritual oppression. It was about slavery to sin. It was about demons that were hurting people. It was about sickness that was keeping them from living the life God had for them. Jesus came to bring freedom. And all of this stuff was demonstrating the authority of his teaching. You'll note in these texts, it doesn't say Jesus went into Capernaum to go cast out demons. And so he went to the synagogue and said, all you demons, get out. What happens is Jesus went in to teach, and his teaching had such authority and gravity, the demons couldn't handle it, manifested, and he cast them out. It was, it was secondary. In fact, he was teaching, and people were bringing the sick to him to be healed, and he healed as a demonstration of his authority. His, his primary work was to bring the kingdom, and these things were showing how he had the authority to do it. So there is a definite connection in this text between the teaching of Jesus and the deliverance. They are connected. It's not two separate things. And when he starts teaching, there are two results right here. The first is astonishment. The people went, look at this. What is this teaching? He has so much authority, unlike the scribes, unlike the religious leaders they were used to hearing. And then there was the deliverance. Of course, the demon manifests itself. So there was astonishment, and then there was deliverance, and then there was amazement at the deliverance. So the people were just, they'd never seen anything like this. Now, Jesus was going around to the synagogues and teaching, and it's helpful to understand the setup. He, Jesus dressed and behaved like a rabbi, and synagogues had a local ruler in those days, and um, knowing Jesus as this famous figure, The the ruler obviously asked him to teach. He didn't just like come in and take over. He was given the pulpit, you know? And so he began to teach and then things started happening. And the scribes, the way they would teach is derivative. They would say, well, Moses wrote such and such and rabbi so-and-so said this. And rabbi whatever said this about that rabbi and therefore we know this is true and good because. They were just, uh, they were learned and they were quoting the teachings of others. Um, frankly, we, I just quoted C.S. Lewis. We go to our favorites and we go, that guy was really smart, and here's what he thought. See, that teaching is derivative. In fact, our preaching is derivative, but what makes it authoritative is it's derivative only as much as it's true to what is written in here. So we're always trying to say, this is what the text is saying, and this is what it means. And it's for you to test it and say, yep, that actually is what's in the Bible, that's what it's about. The scribes were saying all these all these references to rabbis and Moses, and Jesus came and just simply said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He taught from himself, and that was different. It was um, offensive to many. The religious leaders were like, where do you get this authority? How, how do we know this is true? And the answer is, well, look at the authority and the results. Amazement, demons cast out, people healed. Oh, and kill me, and on the third day, I'm going to rise. Right? So when the resurrection happened, it validated everything that he taught. That's how we know it's authoritative because it's true, and it's good, and it's right. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And he said, this comes straight from God. I've gotten it from my Father. I only teach what I hear from the Father. That was his source. Now, Mark, Mark shows the different reactions that people have all through his gospel, every chapter. They're, they're astonished at the authority. They're amazed at the demon's submission. But I want to point out that is not faith. It does not mean they believe and are trusting him. You know, in, uh, in James chapter 2, he says, do you believe in God? Good. The demons believe as well and tremble. And James is making the point that just to say, I believe in God, I believe that he exists, does not mean I'm trusting in him with my life. That is putting your weight on the teachings, much like you're sitting on those chairs and pews. You entrusted your weight to them that the, that the pew wouldn't fall down when you sat on it. The demons believe there is a pew, but they're not going to sit on it. They know Jesus is real, but they don't surrender to his lordship. They don't come under his authority. They don't serve him. The people were amazed, but, you know, lots of things are amazing. It's cool to stand back and watch circus tricks and watch people that are talented um, and be amazed at them. But that doesn't mean we put our trust in those people or those things. The question is, are you going to trust the teaching of Jesus? Do you actually believe that it sets people free, including yourself? Now, one of my favorite teachers is Dallas Willard, and he makes this point. When you ask people who is the smartest man to ever live, they almost never say Jesus. They say things like Socrates or some old philosopher, or more recently, Einstein. Or if they're into money, they say Bill Gates because he was able to get so rich or whatever. They seldom think right away Jesus. We think of him as this lover of the poor, meek and mild. We think of him as a religious leader, but we don't think of him as intelligent, and yet, when you read through the scriptures, his teaching is brilliant. There's nothing like it. I mean, and the, the people that come to challenge him, the lawyers of the day that come to challenge him are blown away by his, his witty and quick responses that are true and, and can be tested. You know, the ultimate test of the faith is, does it work? Do people get set free? If you give your life to Christ and actually put your weight on his teaching, will you experience the freedom that he says he's come to bring? It's, it can be verified, but you gotta, you gotta come in faith, not just amazement and marveling. The crowds were amazed and marveled, the demons recognized who he was, but will you have faith is the question. Jesus is the word that sets free. Now, I wanna point out that he didn't primarily come to teach, he came to rescue and to set free by dying for us, you know, that's, that was the thing. The central thing is the cross. And the freedom that he's won is freedom from guilt, from the judgment of sin, from the wrath of God. That word propitiation that's in the comfortable words is important. It it means appeasement for wrath. It means that God is, his his love and his wrath are two sides of the same coin. And he is set against sin and you and I are sinners and that's a problem. And so his love for us sent Jesus to die for us so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to him and be credited with his righteousness before any behavior modification happens. Very helpful to get that right. It is a gift that must be received by repentance and belief, and I talked about that last week. But then the interesting thing is there's all these teachings that he gives about how to live. And if I'm right, and that what he's teaching here is that his teaching sets people free, are you and I willing to trust him with our lives and not just with our death? I know there are many believers in here and I don't question your salvation. I question your living and I question mine. I'm very comfortable at this point that, this, that the cross has paid for my sins and when I die, he will have dealt with all that. I, in other words, I trust God with my death. The question is, am I willing to trust him with my life? Am I willing to go to his teachings and actually put them in place in my life? So he says things like this. It's better to give than receive. Is that true? Do I believe that? He says if you wanna be first in the kingdom, you've gotta be last. He said I didn't come in one way, I came as a servant leader. I laid down my life for you, and if you wanna follow me, you've gotta take up your cross and put to death certain things and then be my follower. Do I actually believe that that is where freedom will happen? Or am I asserting my, you know, cultural given rights in this life, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Or do I want real freedom? See, this comes after receiving Christ's death for us on the cross, but then it's like, well, well, what does the life look like? He doesn't teach much in Mark's gospel. He describes what happens when Jesus teaches, but in Mark chapter 4, he tells a parable of four types of soils, and the sower throws the seed, and the first three are not fruitful for various reasons. The fourth one, though, it says, the, and, and when his disciples ask what it means, he says, in the fourth soil, it's the, the sower sows the word, and those that receive the word, they bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, which, by the way, is a much greater harvest than normal wheat or barley yields. So it's not only does it bear fruit, it's an abundance, it's a big yield but it's for those that receive the word. He says at the end of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that if you hear my words and you build your house on them, it's a foundation that's solid, and in this life, a storm is coming, and when, not if, when the storm comes, that house will stand, but the ones who don't build their life on his teaching, the foundation will be wiped out, and it'll come down with a big crash. No matter how big and glorious the house is, if the foundation is not right, when the storm comes, it will fall and the storm is coming for all of us. So the question is, will I build my life on the teachings of Jesus and not just trust him for my death? Do I actually believe that he's come to set free? What kind of liberty do I need? Is there more freedom for me, or am I still enslaved because I'm living by the world's systems, even though I might believe in his death on the cross? Jesus is the word that sets free. And Mark is inviting us to respond accordingly. Will you and I be partakers of the promise of Christ? Will we trust in Him and then start to systematically, with His help, build into our lives a type of life based on His teaching? Keep in mind, that isn't what saves you. Having a life that is built on His teaching doesn't save you, it's not about works. Jesus has done the heavy lifting. The work that he did on the cross is what saves us, but it's saving us into this kingdom, and that means there is a new way to live. Now, if I actually believe Jesus is the smartest man that ever lived, and he validated his teaching by rising on the third day, then logically I should go, well, maybe I should look at how he says to live instead of the other places I look to decide how to live. It's a different kind of life, and I'm telling you there's freedom there. And I'm telling you also that you and I have not fully tapped into that freedom. There is more for us. But it starts by trusting that his authority is dependable. So will you build your life on it? Will you look at his teaching and begin with the Spirit's help, putting in place those things in your life? That's what discipleship is about, and that's what he's inviting us to. Jesus is the word that sets us free. Let's pray. Lord, this is a challenging teaching. Mark challenges us in so many ways. And I ask that you would show each one of us something that we can do in our life to test it and to find how good your way is. Even if it's not easy at first, Lord, would you give us the courage to actually build our lives on your teaching? Lord, if there's anyone in here who has never trusted you for salvation, there's, there's someone that's still in their sins, would you give them the gift of faith to rely on your cross, to receive your forgiveness, and be reconciled to God? Holy Spirit, help us to follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.